Hello, and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 48, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yes year of publishing. You can hear us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com, or you can pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And uh, this week, we've got a comic book that was suggested by Matt D. quite a while ago. Yes. Uh, not long after we did our series about the underground comics that I will mention again later in the episode. Uh, the reason for that, though, is we're reading today. Ripoff Press Incorporated presents Underground Classics, Wonder Warthog Number 1, a Volume 1 from 1986. Specifically, we're going to detail the story within uh, Wonder Warthog Meets the Mob, but there are about five stories in there, right? Something like that? Yeah. Uh, from different points this is these are reprints yeah Yeah. uh but this particular story was written by bill killeen art by gilbert shelton and the cover price for this comic is was two dollars usd two dollars and 95 cents canadian yes now bill killeen he grew up in lawrence massachusetts about 26 miles north of boston uh, almost on the new hampshire border uh, after graduating from high school in June 1958, he enrolled at Oklahoma State University. Uh, Bill worked for the university newspaper and put a lot of copy in, and eventually decided he could have a lot more latitude writing for a magazine. Since they weren't willing to resuscitate the old magazine, Bill started his own, and he called it Charlatan. Uh, actually, initially, he called it uh, the State Charlatan. Yeah, which I guess was because uh, Oklahoma State, uh, That's I guess, guess that's what he was getting at. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, it lasted for four issues. Uh, by then, they were ready to throw Bill out of school. <laughs> he, uh, he wound up uh, first leaving voluntarily after about two and a half years. Uh, he published one edition of, Char- of Charla- Charlatan <laughs> back home in Massachusetts. I'm ke- I keep wanting to call it Charlton. Uh, <laughs> Now, Bill decided to move to Albuquerque and continue his magazine there while he would attend the uh, University of New Mexico. This was uh, around 1962. Underground Comics creator Peter Rosencrantz remembers, when Bill Colleen started Charlatan, the college humor mag with no college, he had the advantage of no faculty advisors. He rapidly rose to the challenge by posing his circulation manager, Pam Brewster, totally naked in the centerfold of the Renaissance of Croquet issue. Uh, Charlatan was sold all across the South. When, when the underground press began in 1966, college humor magazines became obsolete. They didn't go far enough. Right. But Charlton was able to stick around because they didn't have— No uh, faculty. No faculty, exactly. They, he was showing uh, nudity so that everyone, as we know, nudity will sell magazines. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, Bill was driving a 1950 Cadillac Superior model hearse across the country from Massachusetts to New Mexico when his radiator developed a leak. He found an old girlfriend from Oklahoma State to stay with for a couple of days while the repair shop guys did what they could to keep it alive. Bill says, there would be no trip to Albuquerque, a thousand miles away, but I might be able to make it to Austin, 400 miles south. My friend Gilbert Shelton had already invited me to stay at his apartment, sleep on his hair couch, and help him put out the, the Ranger, which was the University of Texas's humor magazine. Uh, at the time, the Texas Ranger was exchanging magazines with Florida Orange Peel, and that was the University of Florida's well-known humor magazine. And Bill, because of that, he said eventually he headed to Gainesville. I guess he had a good reputation over there, made some relations. He continued to publish the Charlton through the University of Florida, soliciting ads from local businesses, uh, mainly head shops and hippie, hippie boutiques. And the Charlton, with no competition, uh, accumulated much advertising and plenty of sales so that by 1967, 
it was lucrative enough to provide seed money with which he was able to open a retail boutique. Mm. In September 1967, Bill Colleen and two partners opened the Subterranean Circus, the first and only true hippie boutique in Gainesville, Florida. Killeen managed to keep the store profitable for over 20 years, eventually opening an adjunct location next door that focused on clothing. Uh, then the original place focused on jewelry, actually. Um, now, this opened September 20th, 1967, and it either closed in 1990 or 2000, depending on the account. I, I, don't, I you know, different people said different things, but uh, lasted a long time either way. It's an and, impressive stay, yeah. Yeah, you know, especially for that kind of merchant merchandise. Mm-hmm. Uh, long after the hippie, you know, fed, he, he was still operating, but I think he probably switched gears. Eventually, got shut down by uh, re- repeated. Increased paraphernalia laws mm-hmm. um, But I'm not sure Again 1990 or 2000 So sometime maybe he went online at one point But now Bill Killeen Is married and raises thoroughbred racing horses hmm. uh, I think he still lives In Florida but I have to say I'm not sure Sure. Uh, Gilbert Shelton, born May 31st, 1940 in Houston. Uh, Gilbert's parents wouldn't let him read superhero comics, so he turned to other comics for inspiration. He recalls, I could only have Animal Comics and Little Lulu, but Donald Duck and Little Lulu are great stuff. Yep. Then when Mad then when Mad came along in uh, 1952, this was a really revolutionary thing. This Mad magazine, or Mad Mad comic at this point, right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, at recess time in junior high school, dozens of us would gather around if someone had brought a new Mad comic to school and read it until the bell rang. Uh, he would graduate from Lamar High School in Houston. While he was in high school, he invented a mascot, Potty, and spread the name locally. That's P O D D Y. Right. Uh, Gilbert says, I mounted an anti-advertising campaign in my neighborhood in Houston. I defaced billboards with my character, Potty. Potty rules the world was my slogan. I kept it up until the billboard company was no longer able to sell these billboards, <laughs> and they all fell blank. So at that point, I had a much larger canvas. So basically, he wrote uh, graffiti. That was really what he did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he defaced things. Uh, now, Gilbert attended Washington and Lee University in Virginia. Uh, at that point, it was an all-male school, and he did receive a scholarship to attend. Uh, the following year, Shelton returned to Texas and attended Texas A&M University, in the University of Texas at Austin, where he received his bachelor's degree in social sciences in 1961. Yeah, he was not a one-college kind of dude. Neither was Bill sure. Clean, so that's all right. <laughs> uh, while at the University uh, of Texas at Austin, he met Frank Stack, then editing the school's humor magazine, The Texas Ranger. Uh, now, The Texas Ranger began as a student humor magazine in the fall of 1923 on the University of Texas campus in Austin. Frank Stack became editor of the Ranger for the 1958 through 59 school year and published Gilbert Shelton's first cartoons in the magazine in 1959 when he was a sophomore. Uh, this character, Frank Stack, is actually looms pretty large in the Texas, early Texas, uh, you know, underground comics, underground scene, but maybe for another day we'll have more to mm-hmm. say about Frank Stack. Directly after graduation, Shelton moved to New York City and got a job editing automotive magazines where he would sneak his drawings into print. There's really nowhere I can put this, but Gilbert Shelton is a huge car fanatic. It's like part of Texas car culture, and it works its way into a lot of his comics. Uh, but he was able to get this kind of work because he just flat out knows a lot about cars and classic cars and stuff. Um, the idea for the character of Wonder Warthog came to him during this year in New York in 1961. 
Uh, and then in 1962, Shelton moved back to Texas to enroll in graduate school at the University of Texas. This was to get student deferment from the draft, hmm. uh, which worked. Uh, in, sure. And especially in those early days, it wasn't as uh, they weren't drafting as many people. The war was not yet on. Uh, first two Wonder Warthog stories appeared in Bacchanal, an off-campus college humor magazine in the spring of 1962. Bacchanal lasted for two issues. That same year, he published Fulbert Sturgeon's The Adventures of Jesus, one of the first underground comics. And, and when we did the episode, a lot of people talked about this being very inspirational. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fulbert Sturgeon was actually Frank Stack, using a pseudonym in order to be critical of America's Bible Belt. Uh, that's where he was coming from. Uh, Gilbert then became editor of the Texas Ranger himself in 1962 and published more Wonder Warthog stories. He says, I guess I was the only one qualified. I paid $100 a month, or it paid $100 a month. I was supposed to be studying social sciences, but my real education was a humor magazine. It was hard work, but I learned a lot about humor magazines. In those days, it was everybody's ambition to have a national humor magazine. This didn't happen until years later with National Lampoon. And uh, after switching from graduate school to art school, is where he would uh, befriend uh, Janis Joplin, the, the singer. Uh, he was there for two years, and he was uh, finally drafted. Uh, however, he was declared medically unfit because he admitted to have having had taken uh, psychedelic drugs. Uh, an, uh, another thing that would not work six and seven years later. Folks, <laughs> it's, it's like, <laughs> not good enough. Yeah. Get on the call. Uh, now, in 1964 and 65, he spent some time in Cleveland, where his girlfriend Pat Brown who was another UT alum, was uh, going to the Cleveland Institute of Art. He applied for a job at the Cleveland-based American Greeting Card Company. I, I almost mixed my words here. American Greeting Card Company, where Robert Crumb had worked, but was turned down. In uh, 1960, between 65 and 67, Gilbert would move to New York and work for the underground East Village Other, and then to Los Angeles to work for the Los Angeles Free Press. While in New York, Gilbert's work was printed in Warren Publishing's humor magazine, Help, edited by one of uh, Gilbert's idols, Harvey Kurtzman. Gilbert says, He published some of my gag cartoons for the university, from the University of Texas magazine and finally led me to write and draw nude Wonder Warthog stories for Help, <laughs> which I did a few of before Help went bankrupt. When I started, Gloria Steinem was the assistant editor of Help, uh, then Terry Gilliam was his assistant, then Terry decided to go to England. Then Robert Crumb was supposed to be next, and when he reported to work, there was a dejected, a dejected-looking Harvey Kurtzman because Help had gone bankrupt. Oh. Yeah. Uh, around this time, Shelton became art director for the Vulcan, Vulcan Gas Company, a rock music venue in Austin, Texas. Gilbert created a number of posters in the style of contemporary California poster artists such as Victor Moscaso, Moscaso, and uh, Rick Griffin. Yeah, After I, and when we talk about these 60s rock posters, I think everyone knows what we mean. These droopy letters, yeah. kind of a psychedelic look, usually three-color. I, you know, I think you get the idea. These are the guys that did those or created that style. Yeah. Now, after a year of this, uh, uh, Shelton would move to San Francisco. This is 1968, as all uh, underground (laughs) cartoonists seemed to do at the time, apparently. Uh, He he hoped uh, being closer to the music scene would give him more opportunities to create uh, some more of those posters. Yeah, but instead he found other opportunities. That same year, Mm -hmm. Millar Publishing Company, who had been publishing regular Wonder Warthog stories since 1966, published two issues of Wonder Warthog. 140,000 copies were printed. Of each comic, but distributors did not pick up the magazine, and only forty thousand each were sold. 
In June 63, Millar founded Drag Cartoons under the Millar Publishing Company label. Uh, this was the guys that did the Wonder Warthog stories, but this pretty much uh, sunk them. Gilbert remembers, I contributed Wonder Warthog Adventures for a couple of years, and then Millar published a couple of issues of Wonder Warthog Quarterly, which bankrupted him. He had to swallow his pride and go to work for Peterson, which is an automotive magazine publisher in Southern California. In 1968, Shelton self-published Feds and Heads, a collection of strips first published in Austin's underground paper, The Rag. Feds and Heads turned Wonder Warthog and what became his most famous strip, uh, The Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, featured both of those. Shelton came up with The Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, three drug-addled hippies having misadventures, just before moving to San Francisco for the first time. He was inspired by a double feature of the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges, and this really is sort of a blend of that plus drugs. Uh, Gilbert says, thought he could do something like that, so I tried to do a little film. The first Freak Brothers strip was actually an advertisement for this film, but everyone liked the strip so much, I gave up my ambition to be a filmmaker. Fat Freddy's Cat was inspired by Cicero's Cat, a small strip at the bottom of the strip, Mutton Jeff. By Bud Fisher, that was in the Sunday papers And that was in the 50s through the early 60s I think, maybe even the 40s Now that I think about it I think so. Uh, Shelton created a spin-off strip Just for Fat Freddy's Cat in 1969 When he also co-founded Ripoff Press With three fellow expatriate Texans Fred Todd, Dave Mori- Moriarty And cartoonist Jack Jackson Gilbert says Fred was Ripoff Press He took care of business The four of us chipped in $75 a piece And bought a printing press Unfortunately, no one had to, knew how to work the printing press. <laughs> Dave Moriarty finally, eventually figured out how to do it, and we were going to print out block posters and beautiful stuff like Moscasos and Bob Freed's. Yeah, he continues, uh, Jackson was supposed to be the accountant. He had a college degree, but I never saw him do anything but work on his own comic strips. We published several of Crumb's early comics, uh, Motor City Comics, Big Ass Comics, Robert Crumb's Comics and Stories, but he didn't hang out with the cartoonists so much. He kind of kept to himself. Uh, this press would be uh, located in the loft over an old opera house. Uh, Shelton was also a regular contributor to Zap Comics and other underground titles, including the Bijou Funnies, Yellow Dog, Arcade, the Ripoff Review of Western Culture, and Anarchy Comics. Uh, Gilbert did the uh, cover for the 1973 album Doug Sam and the Band, as well as the Grateful Dead's 1978 album Shakedown Street. Gilbert illustrated the cover of the early classic computer magazine compilation, The Best of Creative Computing, Volume 2 in uh, 1977. How did he get that gig? You're like, well, That's right. weird, right? Cool. That I stands like... out. <laughs> <laughs> now, more recently, in, co- in collaboration with French cartoonist Peak, with Yes, Lincoln? you got it right, yeah, Peak. Uh, yes, is uh, Not Quite Dead. Is the, is the story, which appeared in Ripoff Comics number 25 that came out from Ripoff Press in the winter of 1989 and in six not-quite-dead comic books. The new Wonder Warthog story appeared in Zap Comics number 15 from Last Gasp in uh, 2005, as well as the complete gasped, ga- I'm sorry, the complete Zap box set from Fantagraphics in uh, 2014, which also contains Zappa number 16. That you have that set, correct? right? Yeah, that's a that's a big thing. I know. It's a, it's a honker, but it's quite <laughs> quite beauteous inside. I got to tell you. Mm-hmm. Now a new uh, fabulous furry freak brother story appeared in Zap number 16. This was in 2016, as well. 
and this was the uh, the quote unquote final issue. Yeah, they, they, a lot of them they claim to have the final issue, but it's yeah. when they feel like doing another one, it'll come out. It's like a it's like a kiss a uh, kiss retirement tour I mean, or something. I mean, think about it: sixteen issues have come out between nineteen sixty eight and two thousand fifteen, <laughs> so it's not exactly on a very rigid publishing schedule. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Shelton and his wife moved to France in nineteen eighty four, and this was actually uh, not planned. It came by by accident here. Uh, Shelton and his wife had come to France for a comic book signing tour, and while they were there, the charter airline they'd hire went bankrupt. <laughs> so they were stranded. I love that. <laughs> that's uh, awesome. They've been, they, you know, they've obviously been back and forth since, but yeah, that's how they, they stuck there. That's great. And now, uh, Gilbert Shelton was inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame at the San Diego Comic-Con in 2012. Yep, and he's still out there puttering around, and I think still doing Not Quite Dead. Um, hmm. I just want to do, do a brief thing about underground comics, which is from whence these come uh you know you kind of got some of the idea listening to the histories of bill killeen and gilbert shelton but just uh briefly the scene really began in the late 1950s when the first baby boomer derived fanzines came out many of these folks were inspired by mad magazine and drew their own gag strips for these fanzines uh, these would have been for comics or sci-fi uh really those two things maybe for movies also uh, as this same generation entered college, they lent their talents to Humor Magazine, sometimes creating said publications entirely. Uh, Robert Crumb did some of that, for example. <laughs> These periodicals would feature comic strips by some of the folks that would be making their own comics later. For instance, Wonder Warthog debuted in a college humor publication, Bacchanal, as we mentioned. Uh, in 1968, Robert Crumb put out Zap Comics number 1 through Apex Novelties, and that kicked open the door for an underground comic scene, which we've lovingly detailed in a four-part series that begins with Weird Comics History number 12. And mm-hmm. through that, you can hear much more about Harvey Kurtzman, more about Robert Crumb, Gilbert Shelton, all this stuff. We really go into some good detail with that. So uh, we'll, oh, leave, yeah. we'll leave it there and jump right into the comic. I also want to mention, by the way, the cover is in color, but the interior is black and white. Yes, absolutely. That's all. If you want to try to picture it in your mind, a uh, superhero with a warthog head (laughs) in black and white. There you go. Now, Ripoff Press uh, Inc. presents Underground Classics, Wonder Warthog, Volume 1. Wonder Warthog, uh, as we mentioned, first appeared in Bacchanal. This is back in March 1962. Uh, The story of him is he is Filbert Desinex. He's a reporter at a great... Megatropolitan newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> His colleague Melody Lane tells him of a bank robbery in progress. Uh, this is this is the first story in the uh, in the book, correct? I, th- I think it's the first. If this isn't the first story, this has got to be you know one of the very early. One of them, yeah. sure. Now, two criminals made off with forty-five G's. There's an ex rips off his skin to reveal Wonder Warthog. <laughs> this is a muscular humanoid warthog with comedi- comedically small legs. He wears a costume with WW printed across his pectorals. Wonder Warthog reveals that he fights crime for the money and fame. Uh, he subdues the bank robbers, but learning there's no reward for their capture, well, decides to let them go. Right. Uh, those 45 Gs went to good use. He kept them for himself. Fair enough. Then the justice was served. <laughs> so now... Sure. We're going to talk about, this is the one we're going to go into more detail about. This is a, a three-chapter story called Wonder Warthog Meets the Mob. Chapter one first appeared in Texas Ranger, uh, the December 1962 issue. Uh, the We open up on a half-page splash. It shows Wonder Warthog from behind, while hundreds of people rush towards him angrily. Uh, so he's not facing down an actual, so he's, he's facing an actual mob of people. 
not the mafia. That's that's the gag here. Yeah, that 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 that's actually the next story. Yeah, he he will actually <laughs> face them down. So a burst right there claims in the first of four or possibly eighty-three installments designed to keep you awake nights barfing. This episode is there a warthog in your future or a mob is a mob is a mob. Read it and weep. A chubby and seemingly inebriated. Well, inebriated, and I sound like I am. Uh, Philbert Desenex <laughs> slouches deeply in an easy chair. The Sunday funnies clutched in his left hand while his right hand holds a can of what we we're guessing is beer, yeah. uh, resting on his protruding stomach. Hope it's uh, nothing harder than beer because he looks pretty messed up in this episode. He does. A caption reads Night, quiet, moonless, peaceful night. Reigns triumphantly over the near-empty streets and avenues of sprawling Motherload City. In his suburban retreat, Philbert Desenex, timid, mild-mannered reporter for a great megatropolitan newspaper, sits, reaping the reward rewards of a hard day's work. It's gonna be one of those comics. Yeah, definitely. Meanwhile, however, a sudden flutter, a sudden flurry of activity stirs the downtown Motherload Police headquarters. And a police officer runs up to the chief sitting at a desk. You know, it's in this. It's not really clear which way he's facing. I think he's facing away, but can, <laughs> I can think he, so too. Right? It's very weird. Look, like, is it even a human? Anyway, it's very strange. <laughs> the officer exclaims, "Chief, what are we gonna do? It's the mob again. They just hit down the same old forty-eight Studebaker, and they're running around looting and pillaging and killing people. And you remember what to do? What they do to women? It's awful, chief." Now, the chief says he could tell something was up because of the flurry of activity stirring at the headquarters. In the background, we see officers kind of running around, and they're making a flutter noise yeah. around their feet. Yeah, the officer. Never mind that, chief. Tell us what to do. Now, suddenly the desk disappeared, and now the chief is standing <laughs> before the officer. He's hiking up his pants, and they're just oversized like clown pants, like practically drooping off of his body. The chief says he's going to stop this problem immediately by quitting the force. <laughs> he goes... I don't mind this job when all I had to do was give out parking tickets and bust up wild parties and sell tickets to the policeman's ball. But I'll be damned if I'm going to mess with for real criminals. Hell, that's dangerous. I could get hurt. Nothing to do now but summon Wonder Warthog. The officer goes, to the roof. It's time for the hog signal. The police officers access the roof via the fire escape, which, which is weird. And the hog signal is actually a siren that makes a pig call. Sweet. <laughs> it wakes up nearly everyone in Motherload and also causes Wonder Warthog to burst from Philbit's bed, which is clearly marked as such. Uh, springs and blankets fly everywhere. Caption reads Leaping into the action, the good pig soon spots the mob. A silhouette of Wonder Warthog flies high above thousands of people filling a street and usurping cars. Also, they, uh, they have a tank? Yeah, I don't know. The, the mob usually has. Wonder Warthog says, Good gallstones! It's World War II! In person! Wonder Warthog stands before the mob, hands on his hips with his index finger in the air. I'll put a halt to this. All right, gentlemen. Desist, if you will. They trample him viciously and graphically with a splap. <laughs> the tank looms large in the background. Uh, Wonder Warthog gets up. He's all covered in bruises, and he says, Ha! Thought you had me there, eh? Well, perhaps you don't remember who I am. One of the uh, one of the rioting mobs says, Are you kidding, Porky? Another guy says, How many pigs you think go running around in a red and green fairy suit? You grew up in, New in a New York street gang or something? Maybe he reads Playboy magazine. 
Laugh if you will, buffoons, but remember that I can destroy every one of you within seconds if I wish. I just don't feel like it right now. And then a giant pie falls on Wonder Warthog. And if you've ever made a pie and dropped it, you know it falls pie side That's down. That's right, definitely. <laughs> no, Wonder Warthog is laid out. He says, oh, Horace, this is strawberry rhubarb pie, and I'm allergic to strawberry rhubarb. My super strength is completely nullified, as it were. Oh, moan, I'll lie here for 36 years and perish in ignominy. What a pathetic end for the noblest warthog of them all. Well, cry. And the last panel is a giant upended pie tin, strawberry rhubarb splattered beneath it, while two folks look on. Caption reads, Is this then the end of the super swine? Is there anything in the vast reaches of time and space that can yet save a hog from this seemingly imminent fate? Tune in next issue when Wonder Warthog faces the most critical crisis of his entire career, while the fanatical mob runs loose in Motherload. To be continued. Right now, in Wonder right Warthog now. Meets the Mob, Chapter 2. Uh, this chapter first appeared in Texas Ranger. That was February 1963 issue. And a burst on this half splash page reads, Introducing the Secret Seven. Yeah, we pick up directly from the last chapter. We see the same upended pie tin and the strawberry rhubarb. But now we can also see the background. The city of Motherload is in ruins. A building looks torn down and a car is overturned. And those two folks are still watching. Yeah, <laughs> More people gather as uh, Wonder Warthog figures out a way out of this allergy-inducing strawberry rhubarb. Yeah, he thinks to himself, Say, wait a minute. Although Wonder Warthog is allergic to the stuff, Philbert Desinex has no aversion to it. In fact, Philbert likes it. But then, Philbert likes everything, the fat slob. Why's he got to be so mean? Really? Uh, <laughs> as, as the crowd around the pie tin thickens, Wonder Warthog changes back into Philbit, uh, somewhere in that gooey filling. Yeah. And uh, as Philbit, he eats his way out from under the pie tin. Now freed, he changes back into Wonder Warthog and chases after the mob, but realizes he's not going to be able to do this alone. He's going to need some help. This is more than mere warthog can take. There's only one way to combat the mob, and that's by assembling the combined talents of the famous Secret Seven. I'll put out a broadcast. Caption reads, Ah, yes, the renowned Secret Seven. In everyday life, only ordinary citizens like you or I, but when danger calls, the world's most formidable fighting force. Who are the Secret Seven? Well, I'm glad you asked, because we're about to tell you. All right. We have the Sparrow, whose alter ego is the tiniest sideshow barker, Lewin Gabble. Uh, he's analogous to Superman, if you can believe it. It's just got strange, but all right. Yeah, I uh, don't get it. <laughs> a poor name newsboy named Billy Batdung becomes Captain Madball by uttering the name of an old wizard, the name Ralph. Uh, this is a version, <laughs> obviously, of Captain Marvel, though maybe we could say he's more like Captain Marvel Jr., since Billy... Is crippled like Freddie Freeman, but I don't think that really matters. He's essentially yeah. a Marvel family uh, guy. Sure. We also have a Daddy Bat, a wealthy young urbanite who started fighting crime when his parents were murdered by friends, by fiends. <laughs> friends. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> now this is obviously an Ursad's Batman, but with a uh, like a like a beat poet or a hippie look about him. Mm -hmm. Uh, he wears a bowler derby and a sweater with striped sleeves, and uh, has. But he also has the bat cowl and a uh, goatee. Uh, the bat symbol on his chest is a big peace symbol that uh, has a pair of bat wings. Sure, uh, that's that's unique. 
Sure. Uh, next is an elastic mutant who can stretch his body into any conceivable shape named Spastic Man. Clearly, he's supposed to be Plastic Man, but he has Superman's S-Shield from the Golden Age costume, which was yeah, a right. weird touch. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's the Stink Heap, an anthropomorphic pile of sentient and uh, apparently very smelly garbage. Uh, this probably this is definitely way too early to be a riff on Swamp Thing. Uh, might be considered a takeoff on the parody of the Inner Sanctum in Mad Number no. 5 from 1953. It was called Outer Sanctum and features a story about the heap, about a pile of garbage that comes to life in the uh, Florida swamp. Or it could be a callback to the Golden Age character, the heap, from the comic book Airboy, published by Hillman Publications, and that was co created by Charles Biro. Who incidentally was the fellow that produced all those crime does not pay comics for Lev Gleason in the 40s and early 50s? Or just be a fairly silly and obvious guy. Mm, yeah, I'm probably going with that. <laughs> uh, lastly, since Wonder Warthog would be the seventh member of the Secret Seven, the, we, the only guy left is the team strategist G.I. Edmund. Uh, in this shot, especially, sort of looks like the chubby owner of an old timey ice cream parlor, or maybe. Yeah. Guy that checks your utility meters? I don't really know, you know. Uh, sort of even looks like maybe like a squash-faced Gomer pile. Very, you know, it's like all of a sudden. Unassuming, he, he, yeah. He, you know, for, for the style that Gilbert Shelton draws in, this is almost realistic. It looks, it's kind of jarring, yep. and I think that's the point. <laughs> no, uh, the uh, Secret Seven stand in a tight group facing the rushing mob head-on. G.I. Edmund says, Here come the enemy now! Quickly! Assemble in a circle with your backs to the core! They form a circle facing outwards and then taunt the mob. We'll kill you, mob! Communists! The sparrow goes, You tell him, Ed, you tell him! Captain Mabel says, Who do they think they are? And Spastic Man goes, Messing around with the Secret Seven is instant death, boy! Stinkheep says, Kill, kill, kill! And Bat Daddy goes, Cool, cool, cool! <laughs> And Wonder Warthog chimes in with these These fools must indeed be mad to think of confronting Such a vast array of proven dignitaries What weapon could they have to give them such confidence With what could they hope to fight the Secret Seven Again, I'm glad you asked because we're about to find out Lions Oh, well, and there the guy in the mob says With lions, pig <laughs> The lions are released and begin stalking the Secret Seven You'll be interested to know we plan this attack for today, February 13th, because as everybody knows, on February 13th, the force of gravity is 46 times normal, meaning you can't fly, Flitz. We'll be ready as forever. I did not know that about February 13th. No, I didn't. I never noticed yeah. it, but I, I have no. to admit, I never checked. I'm going to try jumping next time. <laughs> uh, no, the last panel on the page shows the Secret Seven in a long shot, all trying in vain to leap in the air in unison. Caption reads, Can the Secret Seven really be grounded at this crucial juncture? With jungle beasts stalking from every side, Wonder Warthog and his friends appear fated for a gruesome doom. Tune in next month for the next gooey episode. If there is one. And there is one right now. Hey. Wonder Warthog meets the mob, chapter three, subtitled, How You Gonna Keep Him Down on the Farm or 50 Million Warthogs Can't Be Wrong. First appeared in Texas Ranger, the April 1963 issue. And for this one, the half splash opens uh, the way the last chapter ended, Lions About to Pounce on the Secret Seven. Uh, drawing lions is, uh, isn't uh, Mr. Shelton's forte, huh? Oh, yeah, not so good. Uh, Wonder Warthog says, Fear not! Dick Tracy has his junior crime stoppers! 
Captain Midnight has his young folks spy corps. Is it not even more logical that Wonder Warthog should also have a youth auxiliary? Is it not even more logical that they now be employed? Is it? And right at this moment, Sparrow's being swallowed by a lion. Yeah, he goes, shut up and do your bit. We ain't got all day. Wonder Warthog lets out a su 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 I think we can all see where this is headed. And all across the land, the message is received. Pigs everywhere. Stop what they're doing. <laughs> Even one waking up on a platter yeah. with an apple in his mouth. <laughs> and they come running to Wonder Warthog's aid. Ha ha, swine. Uh, I mean, ha ha, villains. Prepare to meet your doom. See what little good your lions avail you against the might of the Bacon Brigade. And a giant herd of hogs tramples the lions into submission and every member of the Secret Seven <laughs> as well. Yes, Sparrow goes, quick, Wonder Warthog, the mobs are sleeping. And uh, we do indeed see a car packed with people driving away speedily. Captain Mabel says, they cleverly leaped inside their roomy Studebaker and fled at the first sign of trouble. Check out G.I. Edmund, who's looking at the stink heap. He says, you mean the smell? Uh, Cap Caption says, using his power of elasticity, the incredible spastic man transforms himself into a sleek and roomy Volkswagen bus, complete with radio, heater, one electric window, and South Dakota license plates. The revitalized crime fighters roar off in pursuit of justice. Well, that's handy. Uh, spastic man actually squeals and doesn't roar away. Yeah, he can't roar. He's made of, no. made of plastic or maybe made of spastic. <laughs> Quickly overtaking the foe, the world's mightiest menagerie strikes from seven different directions. A spastic man stretches into a big wall that catches the onrushing on mob. Uh, Wonder Warthog picks up uh, three dozen members of the mob and crushes them between his powerful hands. Now to exhibit my famous accordion play in which I crush 36 arch criminals into raisins with my bare hands. And they make a snap, crackle, and pop sounds as they're being crushed. As they would, yes. A sparrow goes, wowza, Wonder Baby. Wait, how to put on a squeeze play. Captain Mudball punches one of the mob in the face, causing a domino effect that bashes hundreds of people in the face. <laughs> Captain Madball says, Just as formidable Wonder Warthog is my famous repercussion punch, which has been known to flatten entire armies. Sparrow goes, Yeah, yeah, give me the old one too, Cap. You're the boss. And then the mob runs away from Stinkheap. They just flat out run away from him. Yeah. One of them says, uh, I can't even stand Warthogs. But this is pushing things too far. Holy mackerel. It smells like Perth Amboy, New Jersey. I thought that was pretty good. If you've ever been to Perth Amboy, you know what that's about. Yeah, take her where it's, kiss her where it smells bad. Take her to <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, the mob surrenders to the Secret Seven, though Wonder Warthog still wants to pummel them. Uh, just then, Big Mario, the leader of the mob, nabs Sparrow and takes him to his famous impregnable, fort impregnable fortress up the hill. It's up to Bad Daddy to swing in and impregnate the fortress. Mm -hmm. Edward says, Okay, cool one. It's up to you and your silken cord. And he goes, Crime fighting is all like the craziest jag. <laughs> uh, Bad Daddy swings past Big Mario, who's still clutching Sparrow. Ah, the most, most, most ridiculousest. And then Bad Daddy smashes into the wall of the impregnable fortress right next to the front door. Damned if it ain't impregnable. I trust that you, sir, are the villain. 
Big Mario presents Sparrow to Bat Daddy, and Sparrow's got an unlit bomb in his mouth. Big Mario says, Hey, Mouse, that's right. You got a light? Believe it. Bat Daddy lights the bomb in Sparrow's mouth. Thanks, sucker. Now, Ward Fody, move, and we'll have Sparrow Burger. Step aside, please. Like never, Dad. Whilst we have been conversing, my allies have been speeding to the scene. Will you look behind you? Oh, you won't catch me falling for that, ain't cool. The only way they could be here is to fly, and since today is... The remaining six members of the Secret Seven descend on Big Mario's head from a great height. Look at your watch, arch-criminal. Whoops. 12.01 am, which means normal gravity is restored. Which means they can fly. Which means... <laughs> I'm dead! These are perilous times! The Secret Seven wraps up with local motherload police. Perilous times indeed. And the tasks that confront the... The just grow proportionally more dreadsome. But once again, as always, the just in time does triumph. How, you might wonder, does the just always manage to do this? Maybe it's the gratuities. <laughs> a police officer is handing the Secret Seven a big sack labeled reward. I assure you, good sir, the reward belongs to me. G.I. Edward says, Wait a minute, Hog. Who's the brain here? Whose plan did we use? Bat Daddy goes, ah, yes, fellow goods, but who affected the final capture? Six members of the team get into a big fight over the reward. Spastic Man goes, so who, y who you got there, cat? Me, right? Sparrow goes, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. While Stink Heap idles nearby, stinking up the place, he even says, stink, 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 in the last panel. And that is... That's helpful. That's the end of Wonder Warthog meets the mob, but that's not the end of the stories in this issue. It's not, because we, uh, the next story here that we're not going to go too deep into mm -hmm. is uh, we promised Wonder Warthog would meet the Mafia, and in Wonder Warthog meets the Mafia, Wonder Warthog meets the Mafia. <laughs> <laughs> this was written by Joey Bell Jr., with art by Gilbert Shelton and Tony Bell. It first appeared in Wonder Warthog magazine number two, it's 1968, from Miller Publishers. Uh, this one, co-drawn by Tony Bell, is much more detailed than the other Wonder Warthog stories in this uh, collection. Mm. Uh, Doey Philbert Desinex is sitting around at work and spacing out. From inside his body, Wonder Warthog thinks to himself that he could use a vacation. <laughs> Just then, the editor-in-chief sends Philbert to Gruntsville to cover the Turtle Olympics. Sounds fascinating. It does sound nice, yeah. Now, when Philbert arrives, Wonder Warthog zips out of his body for a moment to check out the town. Finding it crime-free, he decides he's going to vacate Filbert altogether and go fishing for a few days. And just then, the Mafia decides to have a convention in Gruntsville, wouldn't you know? Mm -hmm. uh, the next day, while Filbert covers the Turtle Olympics, he sees several black sedans driving towards an old mansion. mansion. He assumes it must be a luxury hotel. He follows the Mafia to the mansion and eavesdrops on their meeting, and they have all gone legitimate committing corporate crime now. <laughs> uh, Filbert bursts into the room and tries to turn into Wonder Warthog, but Wonder Warthog is napping by a stream with his like a fishing pole just kind of sitting there. So the Mafia kills Filbert. Mm. Now, Wonder Warthog's fishing, he fishes Filbert's bullet-ridden and repeatedly knifed corpse from the stream. <laughs> I mean, always sees him getting shots. So they must have knifed him afterward, right? Yep. Gotta be sure. You know, I guess. <laughs> you know, this is like, we gotta send a message. Uh, he patches Filbert up, fills him full of air, and he's good as new. So, <laughs> Filbert tells Wonder Warthog that the Mafia is planning to close, in on the, uh, to close on the White House. They're actually buying the White House. 
There you go. Wonder Wardog leaps into Philbit Desinex just so he can burst free as Wonder Wardog. He flies above the uh, caravan of cars carrying the mafia. Wonder Wardog dive bombs each of the cars, leaving smoke in his wake that spells Wonder Wardog. Yeah. Uh, Wonder Wardog is dismayed that there's no money for this job, but he's heartened that Philbert will get, will get a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on the mafia. Uh, back at the newspaper, Philbert's editor-in-chief is upset that he didn't file the Turtle Olympic story because this time around, America finally oh, won. Oh, man. Yeah, we knew it was coming. Um, <laughs> and as punishment, he drops Philbert's pay to a uh, measly $2.79 per week. <laughs> that weird, arbitrary low number. Just yes. Makes it extra funny <laughs> that it's two seventy-nine. dollars uh, Anyway, uh, it's the next story as Wonder Warthog encounters Super Granny, but this is... All by Gilbert Shelton, or at least he's the only credit there. First appeared in Help Magazine number 24. That was May 1965. Came out from Warren Publishing. We talked about it before. Uh, at Philbert's job, now known as the Motherload Morning Mishap, the chief tells him it's his turn to take a vacation. Philbert picks a random place on a map and winds up in Austin, Texas. There, he buys a cowboy hat and rents a room from an unpleasant old lady. She has some very restrictive house rules that she reads off. And then Philbert steps out on the town to find the streets and businesses deserted. At 5.30 the next morning, he overhears a conversation between two old ladies outside and learns that they're conspiring to take over the world with curfews and morality laws. It's always the way. Uh, Wonder Woodhog blasts free of Filbert. His landlady bursts into the room and reminds him that there's no pets allowed. <laughs> <laughs> then she chases him, waving her umbrella angrily. Uh, Wonder Woodhog disconnects the head granny's television antenna right during prime time, uh, prime soap opera viewing. Mm -hmm. uh, he comes outside and screams at. She comes outside and screams at Wonder Woodhog. He jumps from the roof into Granny's flowers. Granny threatens to call the police. Wonder Warthog is immobilized them by delivering a box of comic books to the police station. That'll do it, yeah. Then, Wonder Warthog eats Granny's cat. Uh, <laughs> to which, she dies of a heart attack, and the day is saved. See, a nice, happy ending. That's a, you know, good. That's, that's what well we, that we say we want that in comics, right? Can't we make comics brighter and cheerier? Here's a great example of that. <laughs> and there was one final comic story in this, if you can call it that, in this comic. It's called <laughs> The Adventures of Filbert Desinex. First appeared in Wonder Warthog magazine number two. Again, that was 1968 from Miller Publishers. Uh, in this one, Filbert wakes up on a Sunday morning excited to read the funny pages. There's 16 pages of them. Oh, boy. These, when he reads them, these comics take him on kind of a psychedelic journey of weirdness. Uh, it's, there's really no way we could describe it, or do I think no. it would be pertinent to, to anything? <laughs> uh, but he's annoyed at that. He doesn't like that the comics are all so weird and making him, you know, go change sizes and whatever. So he draws a crude comic strip of Wonder Warthog's creators contributors who are Gilbert Shelton, Tony Bell, and Joe E. Brown Jr. And this thing all concludes strangely. So that's it. There's even a couple of color things. There's like a nice uh, cool painting of like uh, Wonder Warthog on the inside back cover, right? There's like a cannonball coming yeah. at him and his face is reflected. Um, what do you think, Chris? Let me know. Let me hear your thoughts. Um, it was different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it's something I'd have to read again. Um, I, I think, uh, Shelton's got a, I really enjoy his competition, composition and storytelling. Um, uh, I think Wonder Warthog is, is a homely character. I, I, I he's, he's a very ugly character. Um, I think, I think that's, that's, you know, part of the, it's uh, intentional. Definitely. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. And especially when, uh, 
Tony Brown helps him out with it. Tony Bell, sorry, it really yeah. gets really ugly. You know, it's like he wow. gets real homely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, I had a lot of fun with it. I, I this is definitely not something I would have read on my own because um, I, I I've seen I've seen it at the uh, secondhand stores and stuff, but they're oh these these comics are always like way overpriced. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's almost like they they know what they've got in these underground dish comics. I, I, I mean, this re, this was uh, a book of reprints for two bucks. Frankly, as far as con- it's about what it's worth, you know. Sure. You will get a couple of chuckles. You know, there's some inside jokes. We did the the story that I you know was analogous to the Justice League. Yeah. Uh, so there's that, and it's about that much joy out of me. It's frankly <laughs> two bucks, probably fifty cents too much, but you know this is. Uh, Believe me, we're used to overpaying for things here in the world. So <laughs> that uh, is true. But I, you know, I, I I love this kind of stuff. I I said to Chris before that I'm actually a much bigger fan of the Fabulous Free Freak Brothers, but that is definitely mm. uh, much more adult in content. And uh, you know, it's 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 a gag. It's, it's silly. They're sure. being wacky. It's fun. Yeah. It's light on the uh, you know, a little bit of commentary, but I don't think it's too crazy. I don't think it's beating me over the head with it too much. Uh, if you take it in the context of the time it came out, at least I, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like maybe comics today are a little more, a little less subtle. You know what I mean? <laughs> a little. Is that, is that just make anyway? But let's not get ourselves into trouble. We had a good time with this, and uh, yeah. So we're gonna take a break right now. I need to let my voice rest a minute <laughs> from doing uh, some some voices. But when we come back, we're gonna talk. You know, Wonder Warthog is obviously a parody of Superman. And we're going to talk about a lot of other parodies of Superman right after the break. I was born down south on a chicken farm near Nashville, Tennessee. There's nobody there but a sky full air of 17 billion chickens and me. Then one day I said to myself, hey, I think I'll take a little of that LSD. Well, it blew my mind and I got real kind. I set my chickens free. And there was chickens in the pasture, chickens in the barn. Chickens in the combine, chickens in the corn. Chickens driving Cadillacs to Washington, D.C. When I said, my chickens free. Thank you. 
And there was chicken in a pantry, chicken in a bar, chicken in the cauliflower, chicken in a corn. Chicken driving Cadillac to Washington, D.C. When I said, my chicken's free. up our Wonder Warthog discussion, and we are about to talk about some homages and parodies to uh, Superman. But before we get into that, we just want to remind you that if you want more of us doing underground comics, just check out episodes 12, 13, 14, and 16 of uh, Weird Comics History, where we went very deep and uh, very long. Very long, on, uh, yep. On underground comics. I think it's, I did the math a while ago, I think it's something like six or seven hours of uh, discussing the underground. So it's uh, wow. a lot of neat stuff there. We had a good time doing it. A lot of that stuff was brand new to me. Um, so we had a real good time. Anywho, onwards and upwards to uh, the many, 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 many <laughs> homages and parodies of Superman. Uh, this is not going to be an all-inclusive list. Otherwise, uh, I don't think we'd ever finish recording this, so you'd never no. be able to start listening that to would, it. That would be, first of all, the only thing on the podcast, and the podcast <laughs> would be like 10 to 14 hours long or something crazy. At the very least. And yeah. then people would still write in being like, hey, you missed this. You missed the, these five, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, Superman, let's see here. He was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, appeared in uh, Action Comics number one. This is June 1938. Since Superman is the first legitimate superhero, it can be argued that just just about every subsequent superhero is an, homage, is an homage or in some way derivative of Superman. There are many that are closer, more direct analogs of Superman, however, uh, as well as dozens of parodies, of which I'm sure we'll only cover a fraction. We've got, what, 47 here? Yeah, 47 <laughs> parodies and homages, but yeah, like, you know, I, I didn't get, like, you know, super plumbers would have a Superman probably mascot, yep. you know what I'm saying, or, you know, all kinds sure. of things like that, so we don't have you know, you'll you'll help us out with after the show. Certainly, certainly. We'll start with Wonder Man, but not that Wonder Man. Right. This is the Wonder Man from Fox Publications, created by Will Eisner for the Eisner and Iger shop. He debuted in Wonder Comics number one, May 1939, so right off the heels. Uh, this is adventurer Fred Carson, who finds a mysterious ring in Tibet that bestows upon him powers exactly like the Golden Age Superman. <laughs> <laughs> Eisner has, had been directed by Victor Fox, the, uh, the head of Fox Publications, to create a Superman clone, right down to the red costume. On uh, March 15, 1939, DC Comics brought a copyright infringement lawsuit against Fox due to the character's similarities to Superman. They do that a lot. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Eisner was asked to lie on the witness stand and deny that Victor Fox had directed him to create this character. He didn't lie. He was an honest man, and we will go into greater detail about this in an upcoming episode of Weird Comics History where we will spotlight Will Eisner. That's right. There's a pretty interesting story around it, but we'll get to that another time. Uh, more popular was Captain Marvel. This was created by Bill Parker and C.C. Beck, debuted in Wiz Comics number 2, February 1940, cover date. Uh, this is radio news, radio news reporter and young homeless boy Billy Batson can transform into the muscular, red-suited Captain Marvel by uttering the magic word Shazam. 
Uh, then he can fly, he becomes super strong and pretty much invulnerable. Plus, he has a cute little cape that it always reminded me. It's oily. It's fastened around his neck by a chain. Did that always remind you of like the bib you get at the dentist? You know what I'm talking yes. about? I always thought about like a basically that was on a, that chain, a yeah. reverse uh, Shazam key. I don't know, you know, it, it's that's just always what I felt. Uh, Captain Marvel was so similar to Superman, in fact, that DC Comics National at the time sued the publisher Fawcett and ultimately bankrupted them. And we we are going to go into greater de- detail about this very topic in an upcoming episode of weird comics history that Chris is working on. So stay tuned, folks. There's more to come. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, we got Master Man. First appeared in Fawcett Comics, Master Comics, number one, cover date, March 1940. A weak, nameless young boy is given a pill containing super vitamins that turn him into the bulky and super strong Master Man. Probably not the best idea to name a superhero <laughs> Master Man while America is fighting against people calling themselves the Master Race. Yeah, uh, a little unfortunate, but all right. <laughs> Also, I don't know if I don't know if uh, showing children taking pills from complete strangers is really something you want to promote in a comic that's going to be written, going to be read by kids who might become curious. Right? Yeah, uh, not a good move. But that's, this, is, this is the wild, wild west of the comics days, as we know. So. Yes. Now, this comic made it six whole issues before it was canceled due to a threat of a lawsuit by <laughs> DC Comics, who were who were at this point emboldened by their victory over Fox Publications. Yeah, you know they're lawsuit against Fawcett for Captain Marvel was quite protracted. It went on for a long time. But the other ones, Mm -hmm. they pretty much scared a lot of these, you know, fly-by-night publishers off of the Superman thing pretty quickly. Uh, And, you know, we're pretty much going to move out of the Golden Age right now, although it's worth saying that there were many dozens of these uh, fake Supermen, and some of them had one issue. But Mm -hmm. essentially, DC being uh, litigious about it was enough to scare everyone away from doing many more of them. So... Um, but then we go on to a fella named Marvel Man. This is uh, maybe not the Marvel Man you're thinking of, but the one we're thinking of is created by Mick Anglo. First appeared in Marvel Man number 25, February 1953, published by L. Miller and Son in the UK. Now, initially, this publisher was reprinting Cap- Captain Marvel stories for the UK audience, but when Fawcett went under, uh, Captain Marvel became a non-entity. They could no longer use it. Mick Anglo switched gears and started writing all new stories about Marvel Man. He had essentially the same power set and a super-powered family, and he said Kimota, which is atomic backwards, instead of Shazam to become brawny. Also, Marvel Man had no cape. Or did, no. did he have a cape in the early stories, Chris? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, there's a lot more we could say about this, and we will in that very same imminent episode of Weird's Comics History that Chris is working on. I, I won't say as we speak, because we're recording now, but he is working <laughs> on it virtually every day. He's uh, showing me it's it's going to be a whopper, boys. It's, it, it might actually go into the triple digits uh, script-wise. It's, sure. uh, there's a lot of stuff <laughs> in there. Uh, we have Hal Carr, created by Edmund Hamilton and Ed Plastino. Uh, debuted in Superman number 80, February 1953 for DC Comics. Hal Carr, H-A-L-K-K-A-R, shows up in a spaceship with no memories. And due to his super strength, he's assumed to be a long-lost relative of Superman's. Turns out he ain't. <laughs> Jarrell just gave him directions long ago, and that's why he showed up on Earth with a note from Superman's alien pops. <laughs> now, the crazy part of the story is that Superman recognizes that Hulk isn't as strong as he is and keeps covering for him anyway. Yeah, wouldn't you think that he'd that's be nice. like, wait a second, there's something more, but I guess, you know, that's the way brothers are. Sure. Uh, now, there's Super Duper Man, one of my very favorites. This was created mm-hmm. by Harvey Kurtzman and Wally Wood. Debuted in Mad Magazine number four, April to May 1953, and never came back. It was a one-off little joke in their old uh, 
comic version. This one is just a straight satire of Superman and all of his trappings. Uh, it was after this issue of Mad uh, that it really took off, became one of the best-selling comics of its time, and I happen to think that this story had a lot to do with it, that this is what drew a lot of people in, was to see the Superman parody, but I don't, I don't know for sure. Could very well be. Yeah. Um, and uh, let's see, we have Hyperman. Created by Otto Binder and Kurt Swan, first appeared in Action Comics number 265. This is June 1960, also from DC. Chester King rocketed from the dying planet Zaron, Zoron, <laughs> and landed on the planet Oceana to become adopted by the kings. Uh, developed superpowers, he began fighting crime uh, as a hyperboy. He would sabotage his own career to be with his girlfriend, Lydia Long. Yep, it's uh, another one of them silly, silvery yep. Superman stories. Yep. Although I would like to say one of my best friends when I was in junior high was also named Zoran. Very nice. I don't know. Maybe he was actually Hyperman. I never knew it. Uh-oh. Uh, now, we heard about the other Marvel man. Let's hear about <laughs> a, another Marvel man. This is, is that a Marvel man? This is Marvel man. Two words. Yes, two uh, words. Created by Otto Binder and Jim Mooney. First appeared in Action Comics number 272. That was covered in January 61 by DC Comics. Uh, this is Ken Clark is from Terra. This is a world where everyone lives underground. He's sent to check out the situation on the surface, and there he gains superpowers. He's thrown in jail, but his cousin Marvel Maid breaks him out and and they uh, out now and again to help beat up criminals. That's that that's the gimmick with them. Uh, this is basically a gender reverse situation of the one that Superman and Supergirl had in the regular comic, where she was kind of kept in the remember she was kept at the orphanage, orphanage for a long time <laughs> until he felt like oh, I need someone to help me move this giant boulder. Bring her out, then she had to go back, put on the, the uh, brunette wig again. So this yep. is somewhat interesting. <laughs> we have Monel or Monel, created by Robert Bernstein and George Papp. First appeared in Superboy number 89, June 1961, from DC Comics. Daxamite Largand arrives on Earth with no memory of how and is presumed to be Superboy's long lost brother. He names the guy Monel because he, re- he arrived on a Monday. <laughs> <laughs> And they, they, and, they be, and they believe he's from the house of L. I mean, that's how you name a cat. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, we found, him, we found him on a Tuesday, so we called him Tuesday. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> now, the story is actually a reused plot from Superman number 80 that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Largand, a.k.a. mon story gets even weirder from here. But we ain't going to go into that. Wow. <laughs> we'll just leave, let it lie right there. We are talking Donna Troy levels of, of wackiness going on with <laughs> him. He, I, would, I, I think someday we're going to have to find an issue to detail his history because he's another one that's had kind of a fractured mm. comics life, you know. Uh, Hyperion, created by Roy Thomas and Sal Buscema, first appeared in the Avengers number 69, October 1969, by Marvel Comics. Uh, there have been a lot of versions of this character, both heroic and evil. The first Hyperion, Zib Ran, was a member of Squadron Sinister, gathered by the Cosmic Grandmaster to fight against the Avengers of that time. The original Hyperion later learns that there's, he's a duplicate version of Hyperion from Earth-712 created by the Grandmaster. For a while, he replaced the Earth-712 version, but ultimately dies fighting against the Earth-712 version. And, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it. It gets no easier after that. It, in fact, it gets way Crazier as we go into the 80s and 90s, but uh, there he is. True that. Uh, we got One Dar, created by Steve Gerber and Val Myrick, debuted in Fear, number 17, October 1973, by Marvel Comics. Uh, the infant One Dar is sent from the Doom planet Duckham to Earth, where he lands in a Florida swamp and meets Man Thing. 
then fights him. <laughs> Best part of the story is that it turns out Wondar's dad was wrong about the De- cam. It doesn't explode. And Wondar was ultimately sent away by nothing. Yeah, I mean, I, I just like that twist. Imagine Superman thought yep. he was the last one he found out. No, no, we've been fine this whole time. Yep. Sorry, that was a false <laughs> alarm. Uh, Gladiator, Gladiator, created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum. Debuted in uh, X-Men number 107, October 1977, cover date by Marvel Comics. This is about Kalark, a member of the super-strong Strontian race. Became a member of the Shi'ar Guard after he followed an order to kill the Elder Strontians. I wouldn't have named this one except for its strong Superman DNA. The name Gladiator is based on the novel by the same... Uh, by the same name, by Philip Wiley, came out in 1930, and that inspired Superman. And the name Kalark is a combination of Superman's two names, Cal L and Clark Kent. I mean, they they are yeah. very similar in power set, but in reality, since the Shi'ar Guard are really analogs of the Legion of Superheroes, this would really be Superboy, right? Oh sure. Uh, but without you know, we're not it's basically the same thing. You know, he he flies around, punches meteors. You know, he can do it all. Yeah, just he has a mohawk is all. Yeah. And purple skin. We're okay. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the Imperial Guard is is definitely analogous to the Legion. It's uh, right. then, almost a one to one, yeah. I know. Yeah, well, you know, they they, <laughs> want, they wanted that too, so they mm-hmm. allowed it. We've got Ultra, or it's Ultra <laughs> with an extra A, mm-hmm. <laughs> created by Jerry Conway and George Tusca, debuted in Justice League of America, number 153, from April 1978 from DC. Just like Superman, Ultra was born on an alien world, was sent to Earth to escape its destruction, but he landed in the Australian outback and was raised by indigenous Australians. Oh, that's something different. And by the way, sure. I, I would pronounce Ultra the exact same way that you did. Don't, don't <laughs> Very feel good. like it's uh, incorrect. Uh, here's here's a fellow whose name you'll remember, Victor. Oh, I love that. Guy. Created by Ken Ware, I think. It first appeared <laughs> in Hero Alliance number one, 1989, by Innovation Comics. Uh, I think this one's out of order a little bit, but that's okay. Victor created the Hero <laughs> Alliance when members of his previous team, the Golden Guardsmen, died. In his secret identity, he was the owner of a chain of fitness centers and former, and he was a former bodybuilding champion. Hey, why not? Sure. <laughs> we got. Uh-huh. <laughs> created by Steve Bright, Dave Donaldson, and John Gearing. First appeared in Nutty Number no. 1, February 1980, from UK-based publisher DC Thompson & Co. Limited. Eric Wimp, an ordinary schoolboy, eats a banana to transform into Banana Man, an adult superhero. He's got a blue and yellow costume and a split yellow cape that resembles a banana peel. And I never read the comic, but I bet you did. It was a cartoon, the right? Cartoon, yeah, which yeah. used to run uh, along with Danger Mouse on Nickelodeon. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, I, I I used to laugh. I couldn't tell you anything specific <laughs> about it now, but I do remember it being pretty funny, and the idea is pretty funny. Uh, the Crusader was created by Alan Zelenetz and Bob Hall. First appeared in Thor number three hundred thirty, April nineteen eighty three, by Marvel Comics. A fellow born in Decatur, Illinois, Arthur Blackwood was a seminary student in Chicago who believed that the church should become more active in fighting paganism and godlessness in modern society. He visited his family crypt to to meditate on his life and had a religious vision of all of his ancestors who devoted their lives to serving God. One of his ancestors who served in the Crusades bequeathed to him the combined power of all of his ancestors and dubbed him knight, and he also got a sword and shield in the deal. That wasn't too bad. And a tunic, too. So I mean, he's kind of Azrael before there was Azrael. 
Similar. Yeah, I think he had a one shot going into the early nineties. So oh really? I remember I remember seeing this and thinking it was oh no, no, that might have been something different. I know there was a religious themed hero that Marvel published a one shot of. I don't know if it was him or not, but uh similar uh, outfit from what I can recall. We have a uh, Super Squirrel, created by E. Nelson Bridwell and Scott Shaw, debuted in uh, Captain Carrot and his amazing Zoo Crew number 14, April 1983 for DC. A sentient squirrel superhero who lives on the parallel Earth known as Earth C minus, uh, <laughs> comes from the planet Chipton, sends criminals to the Elephantum <laughs> Zone. Arch enemy is Lex Lemur. You kind of get it, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much that's the gags, folks, who thought the whole issue. Yes. Now, you might think Captain Carrot could be considered a Superman ripoff, which he kind of is, but Super Squirrel is definitely more direct. Right, you know, I mean, Super Squirrel... More on the nose. First of all, he, he... Wears a Superman costume or looks like it with an SS on it, and Captain yeah. Carrot. He has to eat carrots. He's actually more like the Bugs Bunny ripoff of Superman in that he gets his power from magical carrots or whatever. But uh, mm. where do we got to do a Captain Carrot comic one time? I'm telling you, we do. I love it. We do. Um, Captain Everything, created by Jim Valentino, first appeared in Cerebus number 56, November 1983, by Aardvark Vanheim Press. And Captain Everything is a very stupid superhero whose power uh, negate the laws of physics for the sake of story convenience. Very nice. Fair enough. Uh, Captain Paragon, created by Bill Black, first appeared in Captain Paragon number one, December 1984, by AC Comics. Charlie Starrett was a ranch hand back in the 19th century who assumed the identity of the Latigo Kid. In the early 20th century, a secret organization enhanced Starrett into Captain Paragon. Uh, the name of his original secret identity is a tribute to cowboy star Charles Starnet, Starrett? Starrett? Starrett, I Starrett. guess. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think I've said that five times already. I, I messed <laughs> up there. <laughs> and uh, Starrett had played the uh, Durango Kid. Yeah, I, it's kind of a weird uh, origin here that he was like one thing and then it became a totally different another altogether yeah. yeah but uh anyway i don't know but don't know a whole lot about it personally but i do know all about uh or a little bit about iron iron Mon- iron monroe created by roy thomas dan thomas michael blair and brian murray first appearing in young all-stars number one june 1987 cover date by dc comics uh, after crisis of infinite earths when all the different earths smushed together into earth prime iron monroe appeared from the displaced energies left by earth 2 superman who is now retconned out of the All-Star Squadron team. His real name is Arn Munro, and he has Golden Age Superman powers. He can't fly or use X-ray vision. I didn't write it here, yep. but isn't he derived from a pulp story, right? He's derived from the Gladiator story. The Gladiator story, that yep. very story. So, yeah, so that, that's, mm-hmm. he's all part of that lovely Superman DNA. Absolutely, yeah. The whoever whoever uh, whoever made the uh, gladiator in that story is actually Arn, Iron Monroe's father. It's... Uh, Hugo Danner, I think. Hugo Danner is the guy who uh, injected the gladiator, and Hugo Danner is Iron Monroe's grandfather or father. I in can't the, remember in which. In the comic, yeah. In the comics, yeah. Yeah. Who would have known this it. guy? This guy wrote, uh, you know, Wiley wrote Gladiator, and look how much yep. I mean, legs it's got. Out of, anyway. Totally. Because that 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 goes all the way down. Uh, that can't even escape the Manhunters either, because it goes all the way through to uh, the fourth or fifth Manhunter's son. Is wow. part of the family tree. It's pretty wild. Uh, we got Magna Man, created by Dwight John Zimmerman and Eddie Peppers. First appeared in Magna Man, the last superhero, number one. This was summer 1988 by Comics Interview Comics. 
That's the same forward as it is backwards. Uh, <laughs> apparently, his arch, it was arch enemies with the uh, president. Huh, really picked this one out to remind everyone that Comics Interview used to actually print comics yeah. in addition to their magazine. Yeah, that, that, you know, I, I'd forgotten that even when I did the research. I, cause I don't remember <laughs> Magna Man, I'll be quite frank with you. No, that's for sure. Uh, then there's The Caped Wonder, created by Ben, ben Edlund. First appeared in The Tick, number one, June 1988, cover date by New England Comics Press. Born on the alien planet Otter Creek, the caped wonder was blasted off to Earth, where he was raised as Clark Oppenheimer. He grows up to a lowly reporter by day and a superhero at night. He's got a fortress of fortitude, super hot vision, and other Superman accoutrements. Mm-hmm. True Man, a.k.a. Max Immortal, created by Rick Veitch, Veitch uh, debuted in Brat Pack number 4, March 1991, published by King Hell. Uh, two kids from Slumberg create a superpowered character in 1937, not knowing that this cat creature came to Earth in 1918 encased in a meteorite. Wow. That, now, I don't have any idea about that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, I don't know a dang thing about it. I, I did research now. You can get a Brat Pack trade. Uh, in the world, I bet it's black and white. It's done by his King Hell is Rick, Rick Veach's uh, imprint. His pub, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I'd be kind of curious. I do think I do like yeah. his style, and he's kind of a crazy guy. I also want to say that from this point, so pay attention to the uh, parody. They everything gets a little darker. It starts to become more <laughs> examinations of the Superman archetype as opposed to just like let's have a guy you know punch a. Uh, Building down, yeah, very deconstructionist. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and we jump right in right here with uh, Supreme. Now this guy was created by Rob Liefeld, debuted in Young Blood number three, October 1992, and is of course by Image Comics. At one point, he was an angel of vengeance who quoted the Bible to justify his actions. At other times, Supreme considered himself a god. But really, the Supreme, when people talk about it. They're talking about when Alan Moore took over and wrote it from issue 41 to 56 uh, of his solo comment and changed his origin, in fact, changed virtually everything about him. Uh, mm. Comic book artist, the new origin was that, uh, or story was that comic book artist Ethan Crane gained superpowers after being exposed to a meteorite containing Supremium. Uh, Moore's run was more of a, a meta-commentary on Superman and in comics in general. It was sort of like the... Very Morian. Is that a way to put it? I don't know what to say. I think that, yeah. I think that's uh, yeah. probably the best you way get to do the, it. You get the most out of it if you like comics history and you know a lot about comics. You can enjoy that run. But otherwise, you'll be like, gosh, this is dark and weird. <laughs> yeah, you won't get the nuances if you're not no. at least a little tangentially familiar with the uh, with the uh, field and the industry. Um, we got Mighty Man, created by Eric Lawson, debuted in Savage Dragon number 3, December 1992 from Image. Mighty Man is an ancient entity created by a mysterious wizard named Fon T to, create, to fight evil. Uh, the entity passes from host to host, turning them into a blonde Superman. Yeah. Uh, how many of them have there been you can you think of offhand? Does, I don't recall. Does he come back? I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but yeah. I just want, I just want to know, it's, it's a Mighty Man keeps coming back in Savage Dragon, right? I would hope I so. I thought it was the same guy. Maybe I'm not reading deep enough. Maybe not, no. Uh, now, Icon, created by Dwayne McDuffie and M.D. Bright, first appeared in Icon number 1, May 1993. That was by Milestone Media through DC Comics. Story is Augustus Freeman Fort the Fourth is actually a hundred fifty year old alien who crash landed on Earth and took the guise of the next available life form, a black slave in the South named Miriam. Hmm. Look at that. 
Never got into Milestone. I, I They were always interesting to me, but uh, at that point in time, I only had my precious lunch money to spend. Yeah, we've talked about <laughs> it. And, and yeah. you know, we, we've talked about Dwayne McDuffie and Milestone through sure. the show many times, and I, I definitely interested to give them a look. Uh, I've, I always heard they were quality comics, but yeah. no, no big surprise. The, you know, uh, main kids that really liken to them are black kids. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind. I think now might be the time because I think you can get them pretty cheap if you want to get them out of the bin. Can yeah. <laughs> we got Prime created by Bob Jacob, Gerard Jones, Len Struzuski, and Norm Brayfogle? Debuted in Prime number one, June 1993, from Malibu. Prime is really a 13 year old boy named Kevin Green with the power to transform into a superpower adult. He transforms into Prime by projecting an organic liquid flesh material from his torso. So, uh Magic words have gone out of style at this point. I, I mean, <laughs> can we go back to the magic words? I don't know if I want to see organic flesh <laughs> oozing from someone's torso. Is that the power is to make you sick to your stomach? That's it. Uh, now we have Ultiman, created by Gary S. Carlson. First appeared in Big Bang Number One, Spring 1994, for Big Bang Comics. Now there are two existing versions of Ultiman. Earth A Ultiman received his powers after surviving a Project Gemini spacecraft incident. The cosmic radiation gave him ultra powers. Earth B Ultiman is a member of the Knights of Justice and was a 4F reject from the army who received powers after his car was hit by a meteorite. So it's like Silver Age, Golden Age versions yeah. of Ultiman, but they they apparently exist in the same space together, much like Golden Age, Silver Age characters do in comics. Indeed. We got Mr. Majestic, created by H.K. Praga and Jim Lee. Debuted in Wildcats number 11. This is June 94 from Wildstorm Image. Uh, He's an alien with Superman powers, and uh, he ain't afraid to use them. (laughs) He's actually had some crossovers with Superman uh, since, you know, DC and Wildstorm did their thing. And uh, his origin is a bit more complex, but uh, we... uh... (laughs) We don't have the 10 hours to spend right yeah, now. Yeah, I, you know, taking a look at it myself, I was like, I think that an alien with Superman powers is quite good enough. Yeah. Um, Alpha Centurion, created by Carl Kiesel, first appeared in Zero Hour Crisis in Time number 3, September 1994, cover date. In an alternate timeline, Marcus Alias from ancient Rome was trained by an alien race called the Verimaru to be superpowered, then showed up in an alternate metropolis centuries later, <laughs> like you do. Uh, sure. Later, the Marcus Alias from our timeline would show up and start operating a metropolis also to the chagrin of Superman and Lex Luthor. In the New 52, another Alpha Centurion showed up, but he bore little story resemblance to the others, and it's likely we'll never see him again. Yeah, he showed up in a, in a late issue of Teen Titans just as a random bad guy. It just seems so weird. In New 52? or New 52, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was just there. It's like uh, that that run of Titans. They just pulled some weird guys out and just made them bad guys for no reason. I, I, you know, I think I think because all the other heroes they didn't want to do the job. They were like, nope, I'm not uh, touching that nope. book. <laughs> Won't do it. <laughs> we got Samaritan, created by Kurt Busiek, Brent Anderson, and Alex Ross. First appeared in Astro City number one. This is August 1995 for Image. Uh, a fellow from the 35th century comes back to, through time to prevent the Challenger space space shuttle disaster in 1986. He decides to hang out and fight evil and adopts the secret identity Asa Martin, which is a uh, anagram of Samaritan. Very clever, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's the High, created by Warren Ellis and Tom Rainey. First appeared in Stormwatch number 46, March 1997 by Wildstorm. 
This is John Cumberland. He's the alter ego of a super-powered guy from an alternate reality who has visited our reality to hang out with other superheroes. And while we're hanging out in Wildstorm and Stormwatch, let's talk about <laughs> Apollo, created by Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch. First appeared in Stormwatch Volume 2, Number 4, February 1998, by Wildstorm. He's got a solar-based solar superpowers, bioengineered by a black ops organization within Stormwatch, which is itself a covert operations team. You know what I mean? Like a lot of covert. The, the secret organization within the secret organization is the one you really should be afraid of, folks. That's You don't want to do anything about that. Uh, best known as comics, first openly gay character and married teammate Midnighter. The new 52 divorced them, but they did still share a miniseries together in 2016. So they're, they're still out there doing whatever they do. Have they? Been, do you know if they've been reintroduced in that new Wildstorm series, or are they just uh, are they still lingering somewhere in the I know uh, Midnight DC is in proper? There. Uh, I oh don't, really? Okay. I don't know. There is a new issue I still haven't read. I haven't. I don't think I've seen Apollo, but Midnighter is, is was not a. He's been around. I'll put it that okay. way. He's he's he exists there. Now we got one of my favorites, mm -hmm. Captain Power. This is one of the things that was part of the fallout of the <laughs> Burn Mackey reboot of Amazing Spider-Man, created by Howard Mackey and John Byrne. First appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number nine, September 1999. So not the first Amazing Spider-Man number nine. <laughs> this, no. this was bad. Um, an explosion left Christina Carr crippled and uh, mutated, but also gave her the ability to transform into a super-powered male known as Captain Power. She's a villain-ish, maybe. Yeah. Or, or is he the villain? That's the queen, you know? That's true. Bum, that bum, is. Bum. Yeah. yeah really... I, and I think this, there was. A, I think they even tried to tie this into Burns Chapter One, which oh, was right. also, which was also wildly unpleasant. It was pretty much a, yeah. That I actually know. I don't, I don't know Power Man or fan, but I, I know the uh, Spider-Man Year One, and it was mm -hmm. all that Year One stuff didn't really. They did a few things at the time. They didn't really take off. No. That was sort of like a, you know, relook at the origins or whatever, and I don't know. You're trying to make things contemporary, like uh, instead of Peter getting a microscope, he got a laptop or right. something. And a lot of people lost their minds over that, which kind of distracted from just how poor the story was. I mean, as we've said, often the problem is, you know, they want to update these comics to be contemporary, but these guys are our age, you know what I mean? Like, what, exactly. what, do, we, what do we know what about do we contemporary, know about you know, please? Uh, anyway, that's... They also, and they also tied together, uh, like, the explosion. The, 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 right, right. That's right. Like Dr. Octopus is part of Spider-Man's origin now. Yeah, he, he was... Everything all happened in the same place. Yeah, Dr. Octopus yeah. was, like, put on the science show where he got the spider bite and again, it's yep. all very convenient. And then the uh, arms got fused to his body, and then Norman Osborn and the Sandman are related because they have the same haircut. I mean, it's. I think I think they took a lot good. of that for uh, the Spider-Man movies, or at least uh, that sounds like the second one. Now that I think about it, that's <laughs> wouldn't surprise me. Anyway, uh, that that <laughs> was that. <laughs> uh, Chris has no great feelings for that, so we'll move on to <laughs> Adamant, and I don't mean Adamant. I don't mean Adam Man. I mean Atom Man. <laughs> Created by Alan Moore and Gene Ha, first appeared in Top 10, number 7, April 2000, by Wildstorm. Craig Wallace is actually Adam Man, member of the Justice League Analog, which are named the Seven Sentinels. Uh, they fake all their fights against supervillains and actually run a pedophile ring. So, hey, that's not very heroic. Bright and cheery story, yeah, yes. Really. <laughs> <laughs> We got a fellow that we know uh, quite a bit about, the Sentry, created by uh, what's it? What's what's that guy's name who created him? Uh, oh, the the, the fake out guy. I can't remember. <laughs> now. 
<laughs> was it Cy- oh, Cymac, right? Yeah, he had some good name. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a, it taken from Art Cymac and another name, right? That's what they got. Yeah, I don't remember the other guy's name, but uh, in actuality, created by Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee. First appeared in the Century Number no. 1, September 2000 by Marvel Comics. It's a middle-aged, overweight Bob Reynolds remembers that he is, a, he is the Century, a superhero whose power is uh, one million exploding suns. Uh, that he drove that he drove from a special serum, and uh, we went into great detail about this character and all the weird controversy around it mm-hmm. in Weird Comics History episode number eighteen, the strange story of the century. Yeah, had a great time doing that one. So check mm-hmm. that out. Uh, we'll go to Omni Man, created by Robert Kirkman and Corey Walker, debuted in Invincible number one, January two thousand three, for Image Comics. Omni-Man arrived on Earth in the 1980s where he adopted the secret identity of a best-selling author named Nolan Grayson. He believed he had been sent to Earth to advance human technology and protect the Earth from extraterrestrial dangers, but it turns out he was just an advanced scout for an invasion. So, whoops. (laughs) Atomicus. Created by Kurt Busiek and Brent Anderson, first appeared in Astro City Local Heroes No. 2. This is June 2003 by Homage Comics from Wildstorm. Atomicus was born from Fort Kanager's Atomic Research Lab when an experiment went wrong. He adopted the secret identity of mild-mannered reporter, reporter Adam Peterson, who had a crush on his co-worker Irene Merriweather. Uh, she exposes his true identity, and the anxiety causes him to leave Earth, never to return again. Wow. That was a good issue. I remember that one. But uh, Captain Dynamo, created by Jay Faber. Faber? Fiber? Oh, I yeah. say Faber. Faber. There we go. And Fran Bueno. Everyone should have a last name like you, Fran. First appeared <laughs> in Noble Causes Extended Family Number 2, June 2004, cover date by Image Comics. William Warner was born in 1954, and following his exposure to an unidentified form of radiation that granted him superhuman abilities, he became the beloved protector of Tower City for 40 years. While Captain Dynamo boasted a public image as the greatest superhero in the world, in private, he was a habitual womanizer who cheated on his wife, Maddie Warner, and fathered numerous children, so... Not yeah, so noble, great. <laughs> noble Causes was like a superhero take on soap opera. Nice. It's, uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of soapy elements in there. Oh, all right. Uh, we got Ethan Edwards, created by Reginald Hudlin and Billy Tan. First appeared in the first issue of Marvel Knight Spider-Man that people didn't buy, which was Marvel Knight Spider-Man number 13, after Mark Miller's 12-issue run, in uh, June 2005 for Marvel Comics. Ethan Edwards is a scroll who came to Earth to defeat the Super Scroll but was then raised by an Earth-based family. Originally fought crime as Moral Man, Moral Man, then changed his name to Virtue. Sure. I can't believe people uh, did, they dropped off for the super, for the scrawl issue. I mean, come on. I know. It's like you have Mark Miller and uh, Terry Dodson leave, and <laughs> everybody follows. Take, takes everyone with them, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Homelander, created by Garth Ennis and Derek Robertson, first appeared in The Boys number 3, 2000, no, uh, November 2006, by Wildstorm. Initially, his origin is that he mysteriously fell from the sky into a Midwestern American prairie as a young boy. Later, we learn that he's an earthling and he was given extreme amounts of compound V from the time he was a fetus. Uh, this guy is a real jerk, bordering on being a villain. He's such a smarmy jerk. Everybody in the boys is a jerk. Yeah, that's pretty much how it's all written. And it was published by Wildstorm until Paul Levitt's read an issue. Oh, right. That's right. <laughs> he was like, nope. Uh, we have Blue Marvel. 
created by Kevin Graveau, first appeared in Adam, Legend of the Blue Marvel, number one, November 2008 from Marvel. Uh, former fullback at Cornell University and veteran of the Korean War, Adam Brashear becomes a project lead on a scientific attempt to harness antimatter, which ultimately turned him into an antimatter reactor with superhuman powers. Moving don't know a whole lot about him. I don't either. Yeah, I can't pretend to have read Adam, Legends of the Blue Marvel 1. Or, I did, but I don't remember it. Or Adam, <laughs> Legends of the Blue Marvel 2. I can't, <laughs> cannot claim to have done either. Uh, but uh, And here's another one I don't really know anything about, but Astonished Man, created by Rick Remender and Matt Broom, first appearing in The End League number 1, January 2008, by Dark Horse Comics. Brian Tarrant gained superpowers from the Earth's core and would leak his own energy when his skin was broken. He joined the last team of superheroes after a successful supervillain coup of the planet. Uh, this seemed like it might be a somewhat interesting story from what I could tell. It was like supervillains took over the planet and now the last superheroes are the resistance, but mm. can make no other claims other than, you know, what I've said. I, I, I recognize the logo, but I have not read an issue of that. Yeah, I, I remember seeing it, but I, I never looked yeah. at it. We got Alpha One. Created by Keith Champagne, Peter Snezberg, Chris Samney, and Peter J. Tomasi. First appeared in The Mighty Number no. 1, April 2009. That was a DC book, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it was. Uh, a Navy sailor lost at sea is exposed to radiation-filled water from a nuclear test in 1952, and uh, makes him into a uh, Superman-alike. Yeah, basically. Uh, I like that four people had to be a part of his creation, though. Like, why? I don't know. Anyway. You know, there's a lot of work in Alpha uh, Yeah, Yeah, really. <laughs> Uh, the Plutonian, created by Mark Wade and Peter Krauss, first appeared in Irredeemable Number no. 1, April 2009, by Boom Comics. This guy is like a precise analog of Superman, except he has no cape, a little bit, you know, he actually has a little blonde afro, but basically really the same story. Plagued by his own self-doubt and worry, and so he destroys his hometown. Nope, no big deal. Yeah, no big That's deal. fine. We got Superior. Created by Mark Miller and Lionel Francis Yu, first appeared in Superior Number no. One. This is October 2010, uh, under Icon, the uh, Marvel Comics imprint. Right. Uh, it's Simon Pooney is visited by an alien monkey named Ormam, Orman, who bestows a single magic wish, and thus Simon is then transformed into Superior. He had his wish and he took it. That was it. And uh, the last for our list is Sun God, created by Jonathan Hickman and Rags Morales, debuted in New Avengers Volume 3, number 16 point now, May 2014 for Marvel Comics. <laughs> you got your slide rule out, or you're you figuring out what issue that is yet, Chris? I don't know. <laughs> Good God. Uh... Solar-powered Superbad clone and leader of the Great Society, which is a Justice League clone, and his real name is Zoran, just like my friend from junior high school and just that's, like that other Superman we were talking true. about before, the fake-out. Uh, so that's our list of Superman wannabes and satires and, you know, uh, also rants. But we know we probably, oh, we know for sure that we've missed some, uh, mm -hmm. applied pretty loose criteria to it. So there were some that even I've excised, I'm sure people would argue. And we want to hear your arguments and let us know what Superman uh, analogs you would pick. Or if you want to talk about the comic we read or underground comics or anything comic book or related to this show, you email us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash comic cosmic t mill history. We're on Twitter at cosmic t mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. 
You can read both of our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And Chris updates his blog daily. Uh, that's Chris is on infiniteearths.com. Uh, always a new DC comic every day, very well uh, laid out and described, and good commentary, and then even ads at the end. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we want to want to reach out and thank uh, Matt D again for his suggestion. As uh, like I mentioned before, this would not have been a book I would have ever chosen to read. So I'm glad that uh, I'm glad I had the impetus to do so. Yeah, I love that. You know that that this allows us to to broaden our horizons. Uh, yeah, step out of yeah. the typical. You know, you you can definitely get. You know, honed into Marvel, DC, Marvel, DC, or even some people just one publisher, one thing. Sure. Uh, I, I do like to to break out and do a weird one now and again. Uh, Absolutely. So, yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot for that, Matt D. But I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? I want to do our weekly apology for not doing the letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, we keep forgetting to do that. We will. Um, we will definitely get to that. And also, uh, we wanted to mention that we do upload a quote-unquote classic episode every Thursday. Right. And uh, so if you guys want to discuss anything that happened in any of those, definitely feel free to write, and we will handle those hopefully just as diligently. Actually, as we, we do, do. We do respond to people sometimes, so it's, it, it won't be totally uh, – Silent, but yeah, we are going to read some mail. We, we got to come up with a book we can do, you know, relatively short on, and then we sure, can spend sure. more time doing uh, some doing mail some housekeeping. We'll work it out, but we do appreciate the uh, communication so much, everybody, and we really Absolutely. enjoy talking comics. Definitely, I've learned a lot from people, and always love to hear everyone's comic book story. Mm-hmm. But uh, if that's all you got for them, then I think we're going to tell everyone to keep it on the treadmill piggishly. Sweet. Out the door, just in time Head down the 405 Gotta meet the new boss by 8 a.m. The phone rings in the car The wife is working hard She's running late tonight again Well, I know what I've been told You gotta work to feed the soul but I can't do this all on my own No, I know I'm no Superman